Today's episode of Theoretically Speaking features Renee Wilmong from Self-Care Catalysts, an Alira health company. Here, she discusses Health Storylines, a disease-agnostic and customizable platform that connects healthcare stakeholders to engaged patients. Let's jump in. example of the types of studies that can fill the gaps in data requirements between or in fill the gaps in data requirements between to meet the objectives of clinical regulatory and reimbursement. Uh, yes, absolutely. When we think about kind of those differing objectives, in our experience, the clinical teams are often trying to be as you know, of course, focused on what those kind of critical endpoints are to demonstrate to regulatory what their product is is bringing to this patient population. And so there are a couple of ways in which trying to figure out from a reimbursement perspective or for market access how to layer in those additional more granular insights. Some of those ways can be to incorporate in the clinical trial either a secondary or exploratory outcome. Some of these patient focused questions, whether that's in the form of electronic patient reported outcomes, of making some tools like the journal tool available to capture those more free-flowing qualitative insights from patients at this stage. And because we're not necessarily putting a burden, the similar level of evidentiary burden on those endpoints based on how you've structured it in the study, that provides an opportunity to learn early on from that same patient population. And in some cases, the clinical trial may be focusing on a specific patient population and their inclusion and exclusion criteria are actually what's going to make it difficult to have that more broad real world understanding. And so in cases like that, we can do a parallel prospective real world evidence study that captures similar data as the clinical trial, but amongst a more diverse patient population. And that could mean allowing for additional comorbidities to be in the inclusion exclusion criteria based on what we may expect in the real world patient population, because it's it's often rare for patients to only have one condition at a time. It's often those other conditions that they may have that would keep them out of a clinical trial. And it can also really be to try and gain that real world understanding of what are these patients doing and what are their challenges at this kind of juncture of their treatment journey, whether it's, for example, after they've completed chemo, the parallel study can take into account a much more broad base of patients who've had different treatments or who've maybe considered kind of a second line treatment, whereas the clinical trial may have much more specific objectives to look at a particular flow and to really limit the number of variables that that they're trying to explain to, to understand the cause and effect. Great. Yes, definitely. Fantastic answer. We've got lots of questions here, so I'm going to keep powering through. Next question here, this person has asked, do you have any suggestions for sponsors to make the case for investing in parallel data collection at the clinical trial stage? Yes, absolutely. That's an excellent question. And that's where I think ideally, even before the clinical trial stage, there's an opportunity to engage with patients and patient advocacy groups to co-create those protocols to really make sure that we're understanding the scope of those patients' lives and how they're managing their their decision-making with their physicians. This is especially important in rare disease where our understanding of these patients is going to be much more limited. And that allows for those clinical trials to either incorporate those additional exploratory endpoints or for it to be really clear from that impression from the patients early on that 
understanding that broader lived experience is important. But we've also seen that by capturing this information early on, it can help set up if we're trying to meet for example, first that regulatory hurdle, but then needing to address reimbursement, incorporating the views of payers and having discussions with them that share the perspective of the patients and what the patients need can help shape those decisions earlier on so that you haven't necessarily invested in the execution of a full clinical trial, only to realize that you have these massive evidence gaps that you're going to need to fill anyway before being able to advance your product along that development pathway. Great. You mentioned rare disease. And interestingly enough, our next question here actually is asking about that. So this person has asked, how effective would this platform be in rare and orphan diseases? That's an excellent question as well. And that is really one of the sweet spots where our platform sits because it is disease agnostic. So particularly for rare and orphan diseases, the diagnostic pathway can be very long and protracted where the poor awareness among physicians even of what that underlying condition may be means that patients are left on their own to try and navigate and self-advocate to see the right specialist to get a diagnosis for many years before finally getting a diagnosis, let alone the correct, being matched to the correct treatment if there even is one. So because Health Storylines has an opportunity for patients to download and use the patient-facing app regardless of their involvement in a clinical study, it's available as a self-care tool, we can start to gather insights from patients even before diagnosis so that once they are diagnosed, we have that retrospective understanding of what did they go through. We can start to see what are these patterns, what are the constellation of symptoms that we should start to now think from a predictive perspective, how can we get these patients in front of the right people who will recognize this suite of symptoms and diagnose them appropriately early on. And it also addresses the need for things like long-term follow-up, where because the app provides data to patients just in and of its own, in its own right of providing also access to information or education modules from the patient advocacy organizations or access to clinical trials, patients use it because it helps them connect with their network, with the information they're looking for. And so this can help follow those patients in the long term to understand how, from a natural history of disease perspective, how are is their experience unfolding? And in studies with things like cell and gene therapy, which are more novel, which are harder to anticipate what the side effects or long-term impacts are, we can more easily follow these patients in a dynamic registry using the platform. Fantastic. Definitely such a great tool. We've got another question here. This person has asked, how does this experience differ from claims data? Uh, most patient journeys are done using RWD as defined in claim data. So like ICD-10, procedure labs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a great question. There's definitely a complementarity between the type of patient journey work that we're able to do by going directly to patients in this manner and those that are constructed with claims data. And there are pros and cons of both approaches, which is why we like to be able to work with both. With the claims data, you have the benefit of that structure of more representation because you can look across a broader subset of patients and based on those kind of known metrics that are in the claims database, you can really see that flow of patients. But the trouble that we have with claims data is that it's missing certain key variables from the patient's perspective, particularly why 
they were they ended up in front of that particular physician in the first place, whether they took the medication that they were initially prescribed, how it made them feel, how it impacted their decision to continue with that same provider or seek a second opinion, and especially the um, the experience of that patient before reaching that entry into the claims data set is not present. And that additional context is really where interacting directly with the patients through a tool like Health Storylines can come into play and add that additional important context. Fantastic. Get that full story there. Great. We have another question here. Well, first a compliment saying thank you, Renee. Um, <laughs> and then a question. Can you share any insights on how this RWD is received across countries with different regulatory agencies? So, for example, studies done in the U.S., and then a company is now seeking approval in the EU. That's definitely an important distinction. And different countries do have a different degree of openness towards real-world evidence in general, and especially this kind of very kind of raw, direct from the patient type of data. Increasingly, though, we are pleased that regulators are interested in understanding the patient's perspective and making that a priority. And certainly the FDA in their clear articulation of patient-focused drug development frameworks, their guidances to industry on patient experience data and real-world evidence um, have all been really helpful in moving this agenda forward. And there are ways that we can collect information and patient experience data in countries where there is this more open perspective on the utility of this data to then apply uh, or use to construct protocols that may not necessarily explicitly include this information, um, but help us point to the closest proxies that we can within the more traditional or structured system. Okay, fantastic. What is the role of a patient advocacy organization in this particular product? For sure. The patient advocacy organizations have a very critical role in this because they, especially as the industry only starts to open their eyes and operationalize the attempt to partner with patients more explicitly, the patient advocacy organizations have been this touch point for patients for many years. And they're all, they're an existing source of, of trust for the patients where they're often referred to by their physicians or if they're searching online, it can be some of the first resources that they come across. And they have that experience of interacting with many patients within that indication of knowing what's important to them, potentially even collaborating with other members of industry so that they have a much kind of higher bird's eye view of how we can partner with patients, what has worked well in the past and what is still needed. And so they're constantly helping us through our partnerships to make sure that the tool is providing value to those patients who can use it to support their own self-care, but also to create opportunities to partner with patients at that individual and organizational level. Fantastic. Great. We've got another question here. This person says, great presentation and thank you. And also asks, are you able to top link your data sets with EMR or EHR data sets? That's a great question. And so I think the short answer is yes. There are a couple of ways which we can connect with EMR or EHR data sets. And that depends a little bit on the study design. The nature of our platform being really patient centric and allowing that patient to drive the process means that we have existing functionality for any patient using the platform to sync their own health record 
with their self-provided or self-reported data in the app. They can use that for their own decision-making or they can donate it in the context of a study. And we can also collaborate with health systems or create or with sites to bring in the EMR data of those patients at a higher or kind of cohort level as well. So there are a variety of ways that we can integrate the EHR data into initiatives that involve the platform and the, the partnership with patients. Great. Fantastic. Okay, another question here. This person has asked, how can these mechanisms be used to recruit patients into a study? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways that we achieve this. One is because there are a substantial number of patients who are using this platform on a day-to-day basis for their own purposes, we can always recruit directly from those individuals to invite them to participate in a study or an initiative that we know aligns with their characteristics. We also, through partnerships with the patient advocacy groups and the ability to use other data sets that we have access to, to use digital forms of outreach to find those patients where they are. So based on the characteristics of the target patient population, we can collaborate with patient advocacy groups. We can create something like a configured QR code to onboard patients into an e-consent module to participate in a study in pharmacies or physicians' offices in areas where we know there's a high proportion of those patients. So we can use kind of both broader as well as very targeted approaches to enroll the right patients and to enable them to participate in a study with as little burden or kind of newness to their existing interaction with the platform as possible. Great. I still have a couple more questions here, so I'm going to keep pushing through. This person has asked, is there any way to address the impact on data quality that stems from digital literacy variabilities within the patient population? So assuming that the platform is all digital-based, perhaps the data collection would be biased towards populations that are more tech-savvy, maybe younger, and Mm -hmm. who have devices at their fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And it's something that we're consistently kind of evaluating is really what is the representation of patients in our own data sets? And is this representative of the broader patient population? And we have found that even been surprised internally that the average age of the users of our platform is actually much older than most people assume you or would expect based on it being a a digital first application. And we also have the capability to really integrate this approach to be along the full spectrum of completely virtual in interaction where patients are invited to participate digitally and never have to step foot in a site to provide their data to go through their e-consent and to participate to a very hybrid approach where this digital component may be the equivalent of a site. And there are other sites who are onboarding patients into the platform or who are harmonizing data collected using more traditional approaches or who that allow those patients who prefer a higher touch person-to-person interaction that a site can offer to still participate so that we can really cover that breadth of both digital literacy, of health literacy, of access to sites. We see often, you know, geographically, if patients live far from a site and that prevents them from participating in an initiative, then creating a digital site can enhance that participation and improve the representativeness of our data sets. So those are all variables that we can kind of toggle on or off depending on the requirements of the study and the real world nature of that patient population. Fantastic. All right. I personally have a question yeah. for you, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. where, do you, where do you see uh, the future of this particular product? Like how, how will you adapt to future generations and what are some of the new features that you guys are thinking mm-hmm. about adding to it? 
Absolutely. It's a great question, Sarah. And it's something that, you know, it's really, we're really trying to advance based on the inputs that we get from the patients who use our tools, as well as the requirements from our clients. So some of that in our roadmap includes, we already have the capability to add things like remote or wireless devices so that we can incorporate passive data collection, but improving kind of the accessibility of the platform to include things like voice interaction and to empower the patients to use it in the ways that kind of matter and facilitate their journey are are really the lines that we're most interested in, as well as increasing our global distribution. The app is currently available in over 50 countries. We have, um, we're in the field in several studies in the EU, as well as across North America. And so making sure that patients, depending on the language that they want to be able to use the platform in and to engage in research in their home country is all readily available. And so we're achieving that both through the product changes from a product development perspective and the technology capabilities, but also in partnerships with a variety of research organizations like CROs, patient advocacy groups, so that there really is that high touch network available to facilitate this type of data collection. Fantastic. Very cool. So you can kind of have your health app on your phone, put data in for you, um, and that can be logged. That's really awesome. Great. Next question here. Can you speak to when RWE can be leveraged as a synthetic control arm? Which therapeutic candidates should be or should most be considering this and what is the risk versus the value? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a great question. So this is an area where this Depending on the nature of the product, there can sometimes be situations where a clinical trial and kind of the experimental observational, you know, or an interventional way of assessing comparative effectiveness can be unethical, where you have to, you know, it's, it may be inappropriate not to offer access to something that has a significant amount of promise, especially if you're talking about kind of a rare disease or really late stage oncology indications where denying that opportunity can be construed as unethical. And in that case, retrospective incorporation of real world data can be really helpful to understand before this option was available, how were those patients being treated? What were their outcomes? There may be also registries that have access to more qualitative or at least PRO data to define the patient experience with a little bit more color and granularity than something like an EMR or a claims data set could offer. And there are also increasingly opportunities to use the qualitative data contained in the EMR notes to better understand patients and to provide that illustration without necessarily having to prospectively gather that data directly from patients. And so tools like natural language processing and decision-making framework kind of analytical tools that we use in our analysis of the patient-generated free text data can increasingly be applicable to the qualitative data provided from the physician side. And and seeing that interaction between both perspectives can be very valuable. Fantastic. Should rare disease and oncology advocacy organizations generally, the setup registries to power natural history studies for synthetic control arms? Oh, that's a very good question. I think that's definitely an area where the patient advocacy organizations can set themselves up to, I don't want to say require, but to strongly encourage collaboration much earlier in the clinical development process with industry and with platforms like ours where we can easily configure this platform to empower collaboration and for an advocacy organization to drive their own research activities, it's much more straightforward for them to do so. They don't necessarily have to be a huge organization with a ton of funding and a research 
committee to be able to host their own registry or to build it from scratch. Um, they can subscribe to a platform and together we can configure what that registry can look like, what additional tools for patients we can develop. So it's really democratizing access to this research capability. And that puts those advocacy organizations in a really strong position to leverage the trust and relationships they have with patients to inform industry for the collective benefit of all of the stakeholders. So we certainly are seeing more and more partners interested in that approach and are strong advocates for that kind of activity. hope you enjoyed this episode of Theoretically Speaking and that you'll tune in to future episodes where we chat with pharma value, evidence, and access experts. Don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.